0: Good morning. My name is Brandon, as he said, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, as he said, we were in a series uh, in the book of the letter of 1 Corinthians. It was a, a letter written from a man named Paul to a, to a young church, a church about five years old, who, who were struggling with, with what it looked like to take this new Christian faith and, and live it out, to, uh, to follow Jesus in the context of their city, in the context of ordinary, um, everyday life. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul begins responding to a question. Uh, the question that they were asking was this. Uh, if meat has been sacrificed to, to an idol, if it's been offered up to an idol, can we eat it? Can we eat it? Now, uh, that is not really a question we ask, right? I don't know the last time I was at a steakhouse and I asked, which cut is idol-free? Never done it. But underneath that, underneath their question, is a question that we do ask. Underneath their question is questions like this. How do I take my, my new Christian faith and live it in the public square? How do I take this, um, this, this new faith that I have in Christ and live it in public? What does that look like? How, how do I live at work, at, uh, at, at meals with my neighbors? How, how do I take this, um, for most of them, two, three, four-year-old uh, new faith and live it publicly? Uh, very real questions that they were asking, questions that we ask is going to get to the heart of uh, today, but before we, before we get to it, there's some things we need to know about the church in Corinth. That The church in Corinth, much like many of the churches that uh, um, Paul wrote letters to, or the New Testament letters were, were written to, there, there are really two groups in this church. Uh, there's what we call the licentious and then the legalist, right? So the licentious, this was the, uh, this was the anything goes group, right? So to them, grace meant I can do whatever I want, This was the two bottles of wine alone per night group. Too close to home to be funny? Okay. All right. (laughs) Then there was the legalist group. Was that too close to home to be funny? I don't know. (laughs) This was the uh, nothing goes group. To them grace meant I can't do anything I want. This is the no wine even at communion group. Group. And what Paul is going to do, is he's going to insert himself, and he's going to come into their question of how do I live this new faith publicly, and he's, uh, he's going to thread a needle, he's going to press against both of them, because both of them, in their own unique ways, were reflections of humanity's innate, me-first posture. A me-first posture that in our text the gospel is going to collide with. And so let's go, verse 23 all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. All right, so right off the bat, he uh, he repeats, all things are lawful, two times. Um, and at a glance, it seems like this is a theological statement that Paul is making, but he's not making a theological statement. You see the quotes that are around it? Um, this, is, this was a a saying that the Corinthian church had. He's citing their quote back to them. We, we don't really know where it originated from. We don't know if this was a Corinthian cultural statement or if this was um, just a misunderstanding of the Old Testament that, that ended up in this statement. But either way, th- this was Paul quoting back to them a common phrase. This was not him. This was not Paul affirming that statement theologically. This statement was how. This was how they justified their actions, can do whatever I want. It's lawful. All things are lawful. I can do anything I want. Paul is not affirming it. He's refuting it, and he's calling it selfish. He's saying, hey, listen, what, what you don't need over your actions, over your decisions, over your do this or don't do this is a blanket, um, all things are lawful statement. And you need questions. You need questions like this uh, Is what I'm going to do helpful? Does it build up? Does it build the person that I'm with up? Is it helpful to them? Those are the questions that Paul should be, is saying that you should be asking because um, you know who makes decisions like this? I'm gonna do whatever I want, no matter what? Children. My kids do that. Like my three-year-old child, I don't have a three-year-old child anymore. Um, I have a four-year-old. If you say that, if you do that, it's gonna hurt your sister's feelings. I don't care. Children do that. Children do that. But here's the reality. Kids are a reflection of us in our natural habitat, are they not? Which is why my wife would say it's not only children who do that. And for the church in Corinth, this young, young church, five years old at this time, all brand new Christians, here's what they were learning in real time. They were learning in real time that change is slow. Can I get a witness? Change is slow. A slow process. But Lord willing eventually you move on and we start living more like verse 24. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is Paul saying, hey, listen, don't, don't just think of yourself. Eat meat, don't eat meat. Answer your question. Don't don't just think of yourself. Seek the good of your neighbor. Now, here's what I find really interesting. The word neighbor, uh, it's it's inserted. If you're unaware that the New Testament is written in Greek, translated into English, no, and literally, the the literal word in here is just seek the good of the other, of the other. Why does that matter? I mean, didn't Jesus summarize the law, love your neighbor as yourself? He did. Neighbor, is just a, a statement of proximity. It's a statement of proximity. Who is your neighbor? The person right in front of you. So here's, here's why I think it matters that we just see that what he's saying is just seek the good of the other. Because at the heart of Christianity, the heart of Christian ethics, like Ethical Christian Living 101, it's a college class we're having right now, is this. Be others oriented. Be others oriented. Live your life for the good of the other. Be others oriented oriented. Who is the other? It's the person right in front of you. And this was and would have been radically countercultural in Corinth. Corinth was not an others oriented culture. Corinth was much like modern global cities. They, they were me first cities, right? I'm going to climb the ladder. and If you come with me, good for you, but I'm going. This was a me first city. Anything that was you first utterly foreign to the city of Corinth. And so here's the question. There's a question I want to ask. Where did Paul get it? Like, Paul, student in the Old Testament, um, obviously wrote much of the New Testament, fully aware of Jesus and the Gospels. And Where, where did it come from? Where did this others-oriented at the heart of Christianity, where, where did it come from? Like, did, did Paul get it in the Old Testament? Like, did it begin in Exodus, or did it begin in, like, the Psalms? Or uh, did it begin with Jesus teaching on the Good Samaritan? Where, where did Paul find this originating from? The answer is that it started long before both of those. In John 17, Jesus is praying. This is a a reasonably well-known prayer where Jesus is about to take a left turn toward his death. And he's praying. And in verse five, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then in verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, glory that you have given me, because you loved me when before the foundation of the world. So God has eternally existed as Father son and spirit and here what we see is we see this before the world existing shared love shared glory flowing between the father son son spirit spirit son spirit father what we see in god is an eternal mutual otherness that god was eternally others oriented point being that this didn't originate with creation, it didn't originate with the life of Jesus, it began in the heart of a God who had no beginning. It is the eternal heart of God to be others oriented and what happened in creation, what happened in the birth, life, death of Jesus is that God took his eternal heart and he made it public, made it seen, made it known, shared his eternal life with us. Which brings us back to our question, how do we take our faith And how do we live it publicly? What does that mean? Here's how. It means that we take the eternal, others-oriented heart of God that we have in Christ and we live it publicly by living a life that is others-oriented, by living a life that seeks the good of the other. What does that look like? I mean, there there are no end to the kinds of applications we could give here. It it could look like if you're a manager at work that you care as much about the careers and futures of the people below you as you do your own. It, it means that if you're roommates, that you that you put your roommates' wants and needs ahead of your own. It it could mean that if you have a neighbor who um, that has grass, which is not all of us, but if they have grass, you, you go mow it for them. There are no end to the applications that we could have here what it means is that our heart and our posture is that we want to live our life for the good of the others not asking them to just live their life for the good of me but give our life away this is the fundamental christian ethic live an others oriented life and now paul is going to come in and weave this right into their question verse 25 it says eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All right, here's the scene. Picture with me a farmer's market, right? You come up to a farmer's market, uh, you got vendors everywhere. Um, Now it's meat and then meat and then meat and then meat. What Paul is saying is, hey, listen, just eat the meat. You don't have to go to vendor and say, hey, was it sacrificed to an idol, was it not? Okay, just eat the meat and don't worry about it. Enjoy the steak. Steaks are glorious and good, Paul is saying. Eat them. Put some salt and pepper on it and eat it. Enjoy you don't have to just ask. Why? Why the earth, including the meat, is the Lord's? This is a quote from Psalm uh, 24. Going back and knowing the idol's not real, it's just, just wood. So just eat the meat and enjoy. But there's something else going on. Psalm 24 1, which is the, the quote here, would have been what the Jews said before they, uh, before they had their meal. It was their offering of thanksgiving before they ate. But here's the deal the Jews would have always said, um, hey, we need to find out, offered or not offered, and it was offered, they would never have eaten. And Paul is stepping in and saying, hey, listen, don't worry about it, just just eat, which you can see how would have been perceived by some in the church in Corinth as a little licentious, a little loose, a little bit like Paul saying, hey, anything goes, just do whatever you want, do your heart's desire. But he's saying, hey, listen, no one's conscience is injured, no one's being led away, so Enjoy the meat. And then he goes on in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So if someone invites you to dinner and you choose to go. Key key note there, Paul is uh, not saying if someone invites you to dinner, you have to go. He's saying if someone invites you to dinner and you choose to go, then go and eat whatever is put before them. Don't don't um, object on the ground of conscience. He's saying, hey, don't, don't walk in and be rude and say, hey, listen, my God is better than your God, so I'm not eating with that. Like, just eat and enjoy. A modern application for us, if a neighbor invites you to dinner and they put a meal in front of you, they put a, a plate of food, and they put a, a glass of something in front of you, just enjoy. Just enjoy. Make your decision based on what's best for them, not your own conscience. Because we live others-oriented. Live others-oriented. Again, this would have been seen as Paul going a little wild and crazy, a little loose. The legalists in Corinth would have been reading this at this point and going, no, no, Paul, there's rules, man. There's rules. You've got to follow the rules, Paul. So Paul gives them a rule. Verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So they're still at the meal. You've been invited over, you go. Um, he says, hey, if they put food in front of you, just enjoy it. But if they, uh, if they say to you, hey, this meat's been sacrificed, then don't eat it. Not for the sake of your conscience, but for the sake of his. Because cause you are aware, like the wooden idol is just a piece of wood carved in a funny shape. But, but they, would have been see, they would have seen this as equating your two gods, leading them astray. So don't eat it. Don't do it. In this case, can I eat yes or no? The answer is no. Black and white, period. There's a rule. This would have sounded a bit legalistic. This would have sounded a bit like Paul going, hey, here's, here's some rule. You want rules? I'll give you some rules. A bit legalistic. If we, if we read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find that Paul won't let us go to either extreme. He won't let his pendulum swing over here. Won't let his pendulum swing over here because it's not do whatever I want. It's not do nothing I want. It is always do whatever is best for the other. It is always do what's best for the neighbor. Now, here's a common critique of Christianity that I uh, that I hear pretty often. I'm sure you do too. Uh, the The critique goes like this: the, the the teachings of Christianity are a bit irrelevant. They're they're just they're outdated. Right? They're ancient. They're out. Uh, dated. But let me ask you this. Is this not the world that you want to live in? Like the world where everyone is looking out for the good of everyone else. Is that not the world that you want to live in? Is that not the kind of community that you want to be a part of where everyone is looking out for the good of everyone else? Like, Could you imagine? Just imagine what your friendships would be like. What our friendships would be like if we, if we were just there for the good of everyone else like how rich and life-giving they would be. There would be there would be no Me Too movement because there'd be no need for a Me Too movement. There would be no organization that tracks human injustice from country to country to country because there would be no human injustice from country to country to country. Could you imagine with me what social media would be like if everyone lived this? Like, could you imagine? Like, just close your eyes, picture the day where before anyone posted, before anyone hit da-da-da-da, post, they asked this question. Is what I'm writing right now going to build up the person who's going to read this? Could you imagine what our political discourse would be like Like, don't just roll back to the last election, go to the one before, and the one before, and the one before, and for as far back as you and I can remember. Can you imagine what our political discourse would be like if before we spoke, before anyone spoke, we asked the question, is this gonna build up? Is this gonna be helpful? For me, you, you know what would go away? Sarcasm. Sarcasm. Like, stupid jokes that aren't funny that just hurt people. Like, that would go away if I asked that question before I spoke. Could you imagine what the world would be like? So here's what we're trying to do at Sojourn. If you're new to Sojourn, you've been around a long time, here's what we're trying to do. We are trying to live the world we all want. That's what we're trying to do. Imperfectly trying to live the world we all want. But there's a problem. The problem is me first default. It's not gone in me. It's not gone in you. That's why Paul goes where he does now. So he said, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for, and now he's pivoting, pivoting to two questions, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, I think this is a rhetorical question. He's making a point. He is uh, assuming their response to this, their response being, hey, listen, I, 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 I prayed Psalm 24, I'm thankful, it's not fair that because of their issues I have to give up on the stake. It's not fair. This is not fair. Why do I have to withhold because of their issue? I'm grateful for it, I thank the Lord for it, why do I have to withhold because of them? It's not fair. This is me first being exposed, fleshed, lived out. That's why he comes back with verse 31, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you choose, whether you choose to eat, choose to drink, your grid's not, can I, can I not, it's not fair, not fair, it's do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. Now, do all to the glory of God, this, this verse, this is a coffee cup verse, don't you know what I'm talking about? No? Just, yeah? Yes? Yes? Um, On a coffee cup, they sell it all over the place. I'm glorifying God with my gratefulness, whatever. Or it's a bumper sticker, right, on the back of a car as the car cuts me off, which is always fun. This is a coffee cup verse that has nothing to do with coffee. So what does Paul mean when he says, do all to the glory of God? What is in Paul's mind? What's he thinking of when he says, do it all to the glory of God? I think Philippians 3 answers. That's not true. Philippians 2. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You could probably just stop right there and that summarizes Paul. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself the glory of God the Father. And Jesus emptied himself in the incarnation. He lived as a servant, humbled himself in life, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, and he did it to the glory of the Father. I think what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians is the omnidirectional, others-oriented life and death of Jesus. Not not for me, but for the good of my people and for the glory of my Father. I think what Paul has in mind is the omnidirectional, other-oriented life of Jesus that the glory of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is an eternal, others-oriented God doing for others what they can't do for themselves. Namely, making a way to God. That's the heart of it. So, do it all to the glory of God. What does that mean? It means reflecting the eternal, others-oriented heart of God most fully displayed in the life-death of Jesus. By living an others-oriented life, giving your life away for the good of others. That is the heart of Paul's answer. Want to glorify God, do it for the good of others, live for the good of others. And now um, Paul is going to land this eight chapter, I think eight through ten, this section with the conclusion. That's not, not just a conclusion to our passage, but a conclusion to the broader section. So eat, drink, do it all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. These are the, the three groups that he's been addressing in these chapters. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but, the, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's probably worth saying in our, in our day that when he says try to please everyone, he's not talking about being a, not a people pleaser. He's not suggesting you be a people pleaser. He's saying that I'm giving my life away for the good of others that, that the gospel might lead to their salvation, that I, that I might lead to their eternal good. My temporal sacrifices for their eternal good is a trade-off I am more than willing to make. That's what he's saying here. How you to take your faith out He says, listen, don't don't unnecessarily offend the Jew, the Greek, or the church. Let the gospel be the stumbling block. Let the gospel be the stumbling block. Don't make your life the stumbling block. Let Jesus and his gospel be the stumbling block, not be another stumbling block. Why? That it might lead to their salvation. This was the way of Jesus, the way of Paul, and it's to be the way of us. And so here's what I want to do. I, I want to take my last five minutes and I want to land the plane like this. I want to restate one more time. I want to restate one more time just Paul's bullseye on what what it is that he's asking the people in Corinth and therefore us to do and to live. And I want to give one closing application. One closing application, not so much to our sermon today, but to the chapters eight through ten. This this unit that we've had here is Paul's respond to this real life question here. Here it is, eat, don't eat, hey, whatever you do, make your decision based on the aim being the glory of God. How? By living an others-oriented life, doing what's best for your neighbor. Don't don't say it's fair not fair, don't say, well, I'm just allowed to, or I'm not allowed. Do what's best for the other, that we are to be an others-oriented people, reflecting the eternal heart of God in our daily lives. Living, living a life that is best for the Other. Now, one closing application. One closing application, here it is. Consumerism kills. Consumerism kills. Consumerism, the uh, I will, um, I expect you to meet my needs, if you don't meet my needs, I'm I'm out. Uh, I want you to do things the way I like you to do them or I'm out, which consumerism is not simply about I like the preaching or I don't like the preaching or I like the music, I don't like the music or I like the way they do community or I don't like the way they do community. Consumerism is looking at the church, the bride of Christ and saying, you are here to serve my needs. You are here to serve my ends. I'm with you as long as you match up to what my expectations are for you. As long as you meet my standards, I'm with you. And so, if you, if you say things like, I, you know, just the way they do community, as long as they do community the way that I like them to do community, I'm in with them. That is the fundamental posture of saying, listen, I'm, I'm with you as long as you do what I need you to do. It is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to give our lives away for the good of the other, not to demand of the other the good of us, to give our life away for the good of the other. And some of us, some of us in our little community here need to repent from treating the church like a grocery store. Listen, consumerism is just fine when it comes to a grocery store. I am more than willing to leave Kroger if I find a better grocery store with better prices. Not when it comes to the church. Not when it comes to the bride of Christ, the redeemed community. Not when it comes to them. Not when it comes to them. So who are we going to be? A year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, who are we going to be? Are we going to be a community of consumers just taking, taking, taking? Or we're going to become a community who continually grows in our willingness to give our lives away for the good of one another and for the good of our neighbor, a community who knows how to and is willing to live our faith publicly because we're willing to live our life for the good of our neighbor. We're willing to sacrifice on our end temporal pleasures for eternal good that might come of it in our neighbors. Uh, a community animated by the gospel is a community willing to lay down your life for the good of your neighbor, for the good of one another, willing to look around the room and say, I'm here, I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's the kind of community I want to be a part of. That's the kind of world I want to live in community willing to look around and say, I'm going to lay my life down for you. May we be ever more, more than we already are, that kind of community that our neighbors, that our neighbors might experience the world we all want. Let's pray. Father, I I know, as with every passage in the Bible, there there are just hours and hours of stuff that we can talk about that we just, I pray that you would take the, 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 the words that were said, would you highlight your text, and would you bring the gospel to bear on our me first disposition? Would we... Would we have the gospel collide with our default and would it rearrange our default? Would we be willing to give our life away for the good of one another and the good of our neighbors that, that, we, that we might live so that our neighbors might experience the world that we all want? And would we repent from where we have placed ourself at first and the way that that manifests is in our consumerism? Would you give me the courage to repent of this? I need it. We ask for that in Christ's name. Amen.